the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Get it going right here, right now. This is New Generation Declassified, and you're listening to an all-new episode of New Generation Declassified exclusively here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. I'm one half of that two-man power trip of wrestling, and every single week I take to the airwaves here on the New Generation Declassified to go back in time and talk about something having to do with the new generation era of the World Wrestling Federation, an era that was basically from 1993 to the early part of 1997, depending on who you talk to. Some might say it's late 1992. Some might say it's the middle of 1993. But we just kind of use the uh, end game number of January 1st, 1993, uh, as the uh, the barometer of our new generation timeline and say, all right, it starts here and it ends just after 1997. Uh, let's just say uh, WrestleMania 13. I think that really should be it. Or if you really want to go very deep, it's when Raw change sets. How about that? That's where we'll say the new generation ends and the, uh, the red ropes and the new logos and all that good stuff uh, comes into play. Uh, but here on this journey in new generation declassified land, uh, we go back in time and look, we're not experts. We're not here to tell you that it's uh, the exact you know, news. It's not the exact way it went down. This is being a fan growing up in the era and then looking back as a, a fan in the rearview mirror and going back in time and analyzing it and seeing what was it like then versus what it's like now. Uh, maybe some things we've learned along the way, some things we remember from the moment. Uh, but it's just something that this show has really been able to bring out for a lot of fans, either introducing them to the new generation product or just toggling the old memory bank and uh, bringing some memories you forgot back up to the front and uh, enjoying some wrestling action. Because, look, I think we can all agree it's very tough to do that these days. And, and it's no uh, knock on modern wrestling. It's no knock on modern wrestlers. It's just that for most of the fans, the diehards, the old school fans are the ones that still kind of dominate uh, the wrestling talking scene, especially on this channel. You know, you hear all these old time veterans. You hear all these great names. And they've got so many good stories and they've got so many good moments that they can go back and relive. And this era, this little chunk of time gets forgotten. And hopefully on this show, we will make you remember or uh, introduce you to some uh, new memories. So the crack broadcast team, uh, not on this show this week. It's a solo Chad show. So if you like listening to me talk for an extended period of time, you've got your wish because that's what's going to happen today. And we're going to talk about the veterans of the new generation. Now, what do I mean by the veterans? I mean, you wrestle for a few years. You're technically a veteran. What I mean by the veterans are the guys that are from the old guard that managed to kind of hang around into the new generation guys that maybe didn't fit, but then guys who did fit and then had gone away. So it's kind of a, uh, a wide range of topics who fit into this era, who didn't fit into this era uh, as much as we want to talk about, your Diesels, your Shawn Michaels, your Bret Hart's, your Undertakers, your Razor Ramones of the world, guys that really were spotlighted and pushed very heavily, you know, your Owen Hart's, Yokozuna, guys like that. 
you kind of realize looking back that all those names that we say were not in this new generation era or were or, or fans who left in the, uh, the heyday and came back, didn't see them. You kind of notice that, wait a second, Hulk Hogan, the macho man, Roddy Piper, the ultimate warrior. They all had a cup of coffee in the new generation at some point. So we're going to kind of look at who else was around and why, you know, look, the Federation era, the eighties the into the early nineties, the golden era, the one that really everybody remembers pre uh, attitude era, uh, WWF. Uh, we go back to, you know, 1985 to about 1992, the Hogan era, the Hulkamania era, and all the guys from those days. I mean, just absolute iconic characters. Uh, and we kind of think, like, go from there straight to the Attitude Era. And you're still in Cold Steve Austin's and The Rock and, and all the players from the Attitude Era and Vince McMahon becoming a character. But in that new generation, you just kind of look at it and you go, oh, my gosh. All right, well, Hulk Hogan was there. The Macho Man was still uh, pretty much a, um, a, a figurehead for the first about year and a half of the new generation era, Roddy Piper and his cup of coffee, the ultimate warrior and his cup of coffee in 1996. But there's a few other guys that I kind of find it interesting, you know, played kind of big roles at some points and other guys that didn't play big roles, but you might not realize they were there uh, as long as they were. And I'm not going to have any real rhyme or reason. I'm not going to go in order. I'm just going to kind of name some people and, you know, you can judge for yourself, um, you know, whether or not uh, they belonged or you can also go back and watch some of their stuff because it's almost kind of uh, funny to see some of these guys in the new generation um, shows because, you know, the color scheme of the uh, the arenas changed a little bit. And you might think of them in that, you know, WWF primetime wrestling looking uh, venue. But then you see some of the uh, the 1993 superstar shows where they changed the banners. They kind of changed the lighting a little bit. And, you know, right smack in the middle here is X superstar. We'll go into that. Um, you know, here we, we talk about this now over the next couple of minutes. Uh, one name that jumps to the, uh, the top of my brain is a guy who came back in 1992 and would really have, I would think, a, a mainstay role inside the entire new generation and being the oldest guy in the company or on the main roster during that new generation. And of course it's Bob Backlund. Now, Bob Backlund, when he came back in 1992, had the story of, you know, a veteran who had been traveling the roads and finally back in the WWF. Is he looking to reclaim his championship that his manager, Arnold Skolan threw in the towel all the way back in 1983, uh, Bob Backlund coming back, you never thought Bob Backlund was going to be a title contender. Uh, a lot of times he'd either be in an opening match or he'd be, you know, a feature match on a superstars um, in the 1993 rumble has a really good showing and puts in a lot of time and, and his stamina is off the charts. Uh, but if you would have told me in January, 1993, that Bob Backlund would be the champion, you know, basically uh, less than two years later, I would have absolutely uh, told you you were wrong because I never would have thought, you know, this uh, white meat baby face uh, Bob Backlund could be a heel. Uh, but as the years and months have gone on, we've learned that Bob Backlund was originally pitched to become a heel in 1984 and that uh, the Hulk Hogan era, the Hulkamania era being ushered in uh, could have been against a heel Bob Backlund. 
And Bob Backlund completely turned it down. He felt that it didn't fit his character. He felt it didn't fit uh, the role he played in a lot of boys and uh, girls organizations. You know, he's always been a youth sports uh, ambassador, whether he's doing clinics or he's doing judging or he's doing some sort of uh, coaching. He's always been in youth sports and he didn't want that to kind of clout the uh, the judgment of uh, maybe some of the parents or some of the organizations that here he is as a quote unquote bad guy on television. Uh, now he's teaching your kids back in the kayfabe days. That was something that was really taken to heart. So Bob Backlund coming back in 1993, no way, shape or form. Do we ever picture him as uh, being a heel, but there'd be the kind of epic uh, WWF superstars match with Bret Hart. Uh, great contest. A lot of near falls where he, you know, quote snaps, uh, unlocks the chicken wing and uh, we're off to the races. Mr. Bob Backlund uh, becomes an absolute uh, dominant heel force over the years of the uh, the new generation, really staying through till about 1997, where he'd be faced off TV a little bit. Uh, I can remember him being on some uh, Northeast indie shows around that time, but then came back to help manage the Sultan in early 1997. I don't think the Sultan did. Maybe he debuted in the end of 96. But uh, Bob Backlund throughout 94, when he became champion in November and then through 95, always kind of in the mix with the Bret Hart's of the world, always kind of, you know, facing those bigger name guys on house shows um, in the midst of running through the crowd like a maniac and yelling at everybody at the top of his lungs. Uh, But I don't think Bob Backlund as a quote unquote old school guy got the credit he deserved to be, you know, this older um, established name among a lot of these younger, uh, you know, up and coming stars. Uh, but Bob Backlund, nonetheless, is a mainstay throughout the entire uh, new generation to include that WWF World Championship win at Survivor Series 94, where he ironically wins the title after Owen Hart throws in the towel on his brother, uh, Brett, or has uh, his mother throws in the towel and Owen Hart uh, puts on a great performance uh, acting as the very distraught sibling um, as Brett lay in the chicken wing for what seemed like eternity. uh, But just a great, uh, just a great psychological play there at the end as Bob Backlund becomes a champion and then loses it a few days later to uh, big daddy, cool diesel ushering in the, uh, the diesel power, uh, phase of the uh, the new generation. Now, here's another name for you. In there, through about the middle of 1993, uh, had had the pretty uh, you know pretty big gimmick change in about 1991, uh, and would hang on and would be a mainstay for the first nine WrestleManias, and that is Tito Santana portraying the El Matador character. Tito hanging on, like I said, through nine WrestleManias. Uh, him and Hulk Hogan were the only ones to be on the first nine WrestleManias together. And uh, he, he just doesn't fit. It just doesn't, uh, it, to me, it doesn't jive. Um, now, great, a great hand, a great veteran, a guy who can help put some younger stars over. Um, but to see where the, the progression of the company was going, I just can't see Tito as a guy who uh, would have been in the mix. Now, if you read Tito's book or you hear some interviews that Tito's done, throughout the years, including with, uh, with John and myself, uh, on this channel, you know, Tito talked about how in 1992, there was a, uh, a, a story of the possibility that, uh, three choices were, uh, bantied about for world champion when Brett was going to get the title. Obviously Brett was one 
the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, was another. And El Matador, Tito Santana, was the third name that was discussed in defeating Ric Flair for the, uh, the WWF World Championship because the WWF was looking to have an international champion. Obviously, Brett is Canadian, so Brett would be uh, covering uh, that uh, choice. But um, I find it not hard to believe because I'm sure Tito would never lie about something like that. But I just can't see with the direction the company was going that they would put it on Tito, who was a well-established veteran who had been with the company on and off since the late 70s. Uh, by 1993, just, you know, you've, you've, you've seen everything Tito had to offer at that point, you know, intercontinental champion, tag team champion, the big switch to El Matador. And uh, by, you know, by the time he leaves, there really wasn't anything else that they could do with him. He's on some Monday Night Raws. He's still on some superstars. Um, He's in the 93 Rumble. But then, you know, Tito is kind of phased out and would kind of hang around the company sort of an ambassador role, but would become a Spanish commentator by 1997. Still working independence throughout all that. And again, if you're in the Northeast, you know what I'm talking about. Tito Santana has been in your town on an independent show, probably main eventing uh, up until, you know, everything hit with the pandemic. He was still getting in the ring. He was still doing his thing. He's still hitting the flying forearm, still dropping the Ariba and uh, being very Tito Santana-esque. And it's uh, maybe a little, little slower now, but still uh, the nostalgia is still there with uh, Tito Santana uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but how about this team too, throughout 1993, they would go on to WCW and have a really good spot uh, for the next couple of years. But the Nasty Boys, the Nasty Boys are still in the WWF in early 1993, which really it's only about, you know, two and a half years after they came in. But I think if you were to pull 10 wrestling fans, they would point the Nasty Boys as being from the Federation era. And uh, by the time the new generation era starts, they're they're baby faces. And I don't really like them in the baby face role. To me, they're absolutely uh, the heels personified and uh, their baby face run uh, kind of um, with a fizzle. Uh, saw them just kind of quietly depart the company. Uh, what comes to mind for me is a six man tag on Monday Night Raw right before WrestleMania nine, where, again, they're kind of an afterthought. It's them and Tatanka against the Beverly Brothers and Shawn Michaels. And all it is is kind of like a uh, spotlight for Tatanka to get a pinfall victory over Shawn Michaels before WrestleMania nine. And the Beverly Brothers and the Nasty Boys just play this absolute background role in this six man tag. And, uh, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason as to why they were even there. You could have put any tag teams in that spot. And then the nasty boys are gone, but then the nasty boys would have a hell of a run in WCW over the next three and a half years until SAGs got very, very hurt uh, in a match with outsiders um, in about, I think night, the end of 96. So they would have a, a hell of a run uh, throughout WCW and become mainstays there. Um, but their WWF tenure ending, not so great as baby faces, which <laughs> I don't think of the nasty boys as being good guys with uh, the pit stop and the, uh, you know, pity city and all that stuff. No, not, a, not on my team. The nasty boys never, uh, baby faces, but here's a guy who started off the new generation as a baby face and what ended as a heel before he mysteriously vanished, which he would do about four times over the three and a half years that the new generation was really a, a, a thing. And that is one Mr. Perfect. Now we will think of Mr. Perfect as the, one of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time from, you know, 1988 all the way to uh, when he got hurt 
around 1991. Um, just an absolute staple of WWF programming, whether it was with the genius or Bobby Heenan, then as the executive consultant to Ric Flair, Mr. Perfect was absolutely perfect. The vignettes, the promos, the, the perfect plex, the, the gum, the towel, everything about him, just absolute perfection. Um, but then after he gets hurt and he's the Ric Flair executive consultant, you know, he kind of just falls into a commentary role. And guess what? He does it perfectly. He's a commentator on superstars. He's a commentator on primetime wrestling. And out of the blue at Survivor Series 92, he ends up teaming with the Macho Man uh, at the Ultimate Warrior had left and thus kicks off a feud with Ric Flair, which would see Ric Flair leave the company. And Mr. Perfect then go on to have a killer early half of 1993, all the way to SummerSlam. He'd face Shawn Michaels for the Intercontinental title, unsuccessfully uh, not regaining the belt. But nonetheless, just a dominant summer and, uh, and and just having great matches throughout. The King of the Ring 1993 rematch of the, uh, Sir, uh, the SummerSlam 91 Bret Hart, Mr. Perfect Intercontinental title match. Probably the best match on that show if you go back and watch King of the Ring 93. Um, but Mr. Perfect disappears around November 93 to make a cameo back at WrestleMania 10 in 1994 as a special guest referee in the Lex Luger Yokozuna match at WrestleMania 10 to then completely disappear again until, let me see if I'm going to pull my Mr. Perfect timeline out correctly. I believe it was November 1995 at the Survivor Series where he now returns as a commentator playing the classic heel role, which I think was probably the best part of his post-early 90s WWF career as the commentator on Raw, excuse me, on Superstars, and on the pay-per-views, he was excellent. He even did some in-ring interviews. He did backstage interviews. He'd be wearing, you know, the all-blue suit. He just was so awesome in that role. Um, I, I think they could have gone a lot further with it, but as 95 would end and 96 would begin, we would see him be a little bit more active on television. And as we got into the summer and then to the fall, they kind of tease a feud with a young upstart named Hunter Hearst Helmsley, where when Hunter Hearst Helmsley would bring a uh, female valet to the ring each match, Mr. Perfect would kind of come out and steal the girl and bring her to the back, thus creating some sort of tension uh, between them that would lead to <laughs> Mr. Perfect's return match, the first one in the WWF since 1993, which would in turn see him turn on Mark Merrow and never get actually get into a WWF ring again. He'd come out with the curled hair and the singlet and the jacket and all that stuff, but he would never actually get in the ring. He turns on Mark Merrow, and he's supposed to be Triple H's manager until he leaves the company at the end of 1996, and ends up in WCW, which then he would go on to have another three to four years in WCW and never return to the WWF till 2002 Royal Rumble. Great return, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen that. Uh, but Mr. Perfect, you know, the what ifs just jump off the page. What he could have done. Could he have been the WWF champion at some point between 1993 and 1996? What could have changed? in that time frame, Do you not give the belt to Bob Backlund? Can you picture Mr. Perfect in that role in 1994 instead of Bob Backlund getting the, uh, the title against Brett? 
Do you see him in 1996, maybe as a challenger to Shawn Michaels after Shawn Michaels is uh, the world champion? There was a rumor, uh, Larry the Axe Hang, and I remember this very clearly back in the old AOL days. Uh, there was a rumor that a poster had emerged somewhere that billed Mr. Perfect as WWF champion returning to some arena, maybe in the Minneapolis area. And Larry the Axe Henning being one of the promoters for this show, and obviously it never happened, um, but still the the what-ifs for Mr. Perfect are just all over. But he had a couple departures. There was always the uh, the rumors of the, uh, the Lloyds of London insurance policy playing a big factor into that and uh, really cutting off what I think could have been an absolutely uh, amazing chapter in the uh, the legacy and the career of Mr. Perfect. Because, uh, you know, speaking from myself, just an absolute all-time favorite of mine, um, one of those guys that you study. You study his promos. You study his mannerisms. You see why is he so crisp? Why can he have a good match with anybody? Why can anything he, he does be so believable Versus some other guys where, you know, some things might look a little, you know, I hate to use the word phony, but you know, phonier than others where he just seems so effortless with a lot of his actions, just so athletic, you know, so uh, resilient on the comebacks being so, um, you know, believable. It's just he's he's an absolute template for uh, the quote perfect wrestler uh, and the what ifs just go all over the map. But when you think about veterans from that era, again, he's got to move towards the uh, the top of the list. Um, because nobody beat Mr. Perfect. Uh, absolutely uh, nobody beat him. So I digress. We'll move on. One guy who I've talked about a million times on this show is Rick Martell. Now, was it a successful uh, return in the new generation years? No, it wasn't. It was a cup of coffee. He comes back at the 94 Rumble after being gone for about a year and a half. Um, and we talk about, uh, sometimes ad nauseum, the, uh, the Battle Royal to uh, crown the Intercontinental Champion that would be uh, vacated by Shawn Michaels, ultimately won by Razor Ramon and the Battle Royal, where Rick Martel, Razor Ramon, end up being the last two competitors, then have a singles match, which is epic. It is just, it's a great early Raw one-on-one singles match. It's the cover of the Monday Night Raw Prime Cuts VHS uh, with the uh, the Boston Crab being locked in on Razor Ramon. Um he wouldn't hang around long. There'd be a story and a rumor that he'd be uh, coming back in 96 with uh, the Jackal, a.k.a. Don Callis, as the supermodels. And uh, I can see it being there, but I can't see it being very uh, successful, um, especially at that time. Those kinds of characters are being phased out. You know, you see more of your headbangers and your uh, truth commissions rather than, you know, supermodels and uh, the arrogance and that stuff. So, again, maybe fits a little bit more in the golden era and the Federation years. Uh, but nonetheless, I always say it's one of my favorite matches of this era. That's that Intercontinental title, Battle Royal Finals, Razor Ramon, Rick Martel, in the first year of Monday Night Raw, maybe November, December. I got nothing in front of me. I'm just giving you this stuff off the top of my head. Uh, but a favorite of mine. Uh, nonetheless, uh, also let's, how about, how about this one? This is a cameo. I had this one written down cause they didn't want to forget it. This is just a cameo. This is a one shot. If you go back into the 1996, 95 or 96 Royal, no, it's 95 Royal rumble. You get to see Dick Murdoch hit a WWF ring, uh, almost 12 years after the last time he had been in a WWF ring. Uh, just kind of funny to see him in the, uh, the Royal rumble that would ultimately be one by Shawn Michaels, 
just he he doesn't fit, and you would maybe like to see him, uh, you know, maybe get another uh, match or two uh, just to see uh, how he would have, um, you know, jived with a couple of these young guns. Uh, but I'm sure, come on, I'm sure you could put Dick Murdoch in there with an Aldo Montoya and it'd be a competitive uh, matchup, or maybe a one-two-three kid. He could throw the kid around a little bit, and maybe the uh, the kid would outsmart old uh, Dick Murdoch and get a a pinfall victory, maybe a roll up or a count out or something like that. But yeah, great cameo, Dick Murdoch at the 1995 uh, Royal Rumble. Uh, very funny to see, but nonetheless, uh, it's kind of surreal because it's not one you would think would be a, uh, <laughs> a given at that point in time, especially with where uh, the WWF was going. Um, I want to talk about veterans, a guy who didn't get the chance to be in the golden era because he was a little busy uh, dominating a territory. But if you think about the timeline, Jerry the King Lawler, comes in in December 1992 and is still a mainstay to this day in WWE in some capacity. But in 1993 is the absolute most hated guy in the company, just from the start of the Bret Hart feud in the middle of 1993, all the way through their, uh, their epic story, uh, still always having a nod or two uh, in the years to follow. Uh, I know one match that we'll be covering at some point, the kiss my foot match from the 1995 King of the ring, very goofy, uh, but very, uh, very, very apropos when it comes to the, uh, the King's character during 95, uh, where it was over the top and just uh, absolutely off the charts in terms of the, uh, the goofiness, but Jerry Lawler in 93, uh, coming in, dominating Memphis still uh, would go back to Memphis, basically, you know, in between TV tapings and still dominate the territory. Uh, the fact that he could be a baby face in one spot and an absolute diabolical hated heel in another just shows the range. Uh, also shows how much the, uh, the the folks in Memphis love their Jerry Lawler. Uh, one of the things I plan on talking about on this program at some point, but we probably need multiple shows is the Mick Memphis storyline, which <laughs> to me is uh, something the WWE network should get a hold of and do a uh, documentary on where the WWF and the WWF superstars invade Memphis as the bad guys taking on the Memphis stars as the good guys, which sees the early incarnations of the evil Mr. McMahon, uh, cutting promos, showing up at the Mid-South Coliseum, showing up on Memphis TV, and just absolutely giving us a glimpse at what we would see a few years down the road with no chance in hell and the corporation and the Stooges. All that stuff is kind of uh, pre uh, predetermined years before by the McMemphis storyline. It's unbelievable. You see the Macho Man, you see Owen Hart, you see Bret Hart acting as heels, in Memphis against Jerry Lawler and I believe Jeff Jarrett and a couple other names that they were all the baby faces. And it's just like one of those things where you're like, wow, this is something I'm not uh, feeling comfortable with, but it is such a good story. And it shows you that Jerry Lawler, who I wish would have been there in the Federation years, uh, didn't get the chance to do it. But the reason I'm lumping him in with these guys is because if you look at the stars outside of the WWF and, and from the golden era of wrestling, Jerry Lawler could be at the top of that list next to a Ric Flair who did have a cameo as well. Cause he's only, you know, in the, in the, the 
WWF's new generation quote era for a month. Um, but still belong there in the, in the golden era, but had probably one of the more dominant runs. You know, we talked about Mr. Backlund earlier. I would say Mr. Backlund and Jerry Lawler, uh, could be one and two in terms of the heels, uh, in the, the three or four years of the new generation with Owen Hart and Yokozuna being right there, uh, next to them. Because I mean, how can you not, uh, you know, give the nod to two at least of the young guns uh, versus some of these veterans? Uh, now here's two, two more guys that I can give you that were uh, might surprise you. Managed to hang around during the new generation era, and that's the Bushwhackers. Okay, the Bushwhackers managed to hang on through 1996, where they would be repackaged. They would kind of take on almost an Australian gimmick with some boomerangs, uh, even you know, even though they're from New Zealand, but still on the superstars tapings, the house shows the bushwhackers and the music and the marching and the head licking and the head scratching, all that stuff managed to get into the new generation and hang around for a few years. And it's either because Vince McMahon absolutely loved that gimmick or because he felt he needed a solid tag team that he knew could be there. And yes, they would go out and they'd still do indie shows. Sometimes you would you would see him pop in and out, but still throughout 93, a little bit of 94, a little bit of 95, and then into 1996 are back, and I believe are actually in the 1996 uh, tag team tournament that would culminate at WrestleMania 12. I think they were a first-round exit, but nonetheless, they still made it into 1996, which is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, now they're WWE Hall of Famers, but you think of them in that golden era, came in in 1988, completely changed their gimmicks. They were these bloodthirsty sheep herders throughout all the other territories and they become cartoon characters in the WWF and, and completely shed that aggressive and that bloodthirsty uh, gimmick they had and would become these lovable guys. These two, uh, you know, these two blokes that just like to uh, go out there, lick each other's heads and get out there and, uh, and scuffle and fight. And who would have thought they would have hung on? And if you don't remember that, I really urge you to go watch some of their 1996 stuff and see the alterations to their gimmick where like literally out of the blue, they become uh, Australian versus uh, New Zealanders. So I guess that's the beauty of uh, WWF television. Uh, I'll give you one more before we say goodbye here, because I'm sure everybody's tired of hearing my voice uh, almost as much as I'm as tired as hearing my voice, but I got to give him a nod. I got to spend some time around him in the last year or so of his life. And that's King Kong Bundy. King Kong Bundy comes back in 1994 with a ton of publicity. He's given vignettes for weeks and weeks and weeks. They show this return of this monster who has been gone since 1980, the end of 87, early 88. I think he's technically gone in January 88, has a very public and big falling out with Vince McMahon over a computer company uh, ad deal that he had done. He became a spokesperson for a computer company, and Vince McMahon wanted a piece of it, Bundy declined and therefore their feud started uh but bundy brought back in 94 um i don't think he fit in this era uh there was not as many big guys as he would have seen a few years prior you know he'd be in the program with the undertaker he'd have the wrestlemania 11 match be a part of the streak which there was no such thing as a streak back in 95 uh but he'd be a notch in the belt. I mean, there's really not many other guys you could put him in the ring with. He has a, a Monday Night Raw match against uh, Diesel. 
I think they also had a couple matches that might have been on a Coliseum video. Um, and I know they did some house show um, matches throughout 95. Um, but there's just really nobody for Bundy. And you'd see a lot of squash matches. You'd see a lot of corporation, uh, you know, tag team variations, you know, two or three guys, depending on what they were doing. And he just falls into the mid card role versus him being, you know, a main eventer like he was at WrestleMania two in a cage against Hulk Hogan. So King Kong Bundy uh, with that cameo role, 94 into 95 and then being gone. I mean, basically by the summer of 95, I actually had just seen, I think what was his last match uh, for the WWF before he was officially released. Um, and then Bundy would go on to being literally on that independent scene, not even in the Northeast, all over the world from when he left the WWF in 95 to basically a, uh, only a few years ago when he stopped wrestling officially uh, and obviously passing away uh, maybe almost two years ago now at this point. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I asked him many questions about the new generation time and he just felt he was sold a bill of goods that wasn't delivered by Vince McMahon. There was not a lot of competition for him. There weren't many guys he could have good matches with. And, uh, you know, he's very publicly said that he didn't feel Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart were great in that role as, uh, as WWF champion because they were too small. Well, this is coming from a guy who's been wrestling, you know, since the early eighties and he's been through Texas and the WWF and he's been, with these monsters and Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan and Hillbilly Jim and Big John Studd. And obviously there would just not be that kind of athlete going further into the years uh, of the WWF, especially in the new generation era. Wasn't many guys you could pair him with. And that unfortunately uh, was, was kind of the end of his, uh, you know, mainstream uh, pro wrestling, you know, exposure for, for the, for the layman fan, not somebody who's going to go out and look at all the independent show results or go to every independent show they can, where you see a guy like the honky tonk man or, or Bundy or somebody like that on a show near you. Um, if you saw him, you, you knew you, you had a good show and he gave you your money's worth, but just didn't fit in that uh, 95, uh, 94 scene of WWF guys, in my opinion. Uh, but those are some of the other guys that we think of Hogan, Piper, Savage, Warrior. Those are a big four. I didn't want to really talk about them today. They, they all have their place. We are going to do a lot more about the Macho Man in the coming weeks. I think there's a huge demand for Macho Man content. And we're going to look at maybe some of his hidden matches that he's got in the new generation era. And at some point, we'll also be covering a Warrior and his bizarre 1996 return through his 1996 exit. And um, you're going to see a lot of cool special guests coming on in the next couple of weeks and uh, shoot the breeze and going over some of the, uh, the cool stuff that we've definitely uh, got to cover on new generation declassified. So whether you just checked us out for the first time a few weeks ago, or today's your first show, I say, welcome. I say, stay tuned. If you like this era, you have some ideas, please feel free to reach out. I'm very communicative with anybody who wants to chat about any of the shows going on uh, anywhere that, that I'm a part of, or I've, I've been a guest on, or I'm doing currently. I welcome all questions, all feedback. Uh, if you head on over to Twitter, it's at Chad Ian B. And uh, please do not hesitate to give me a follow and to reach out and uh, let's chat about the new generation. Love hearing the stories from people reconnecting with this time frame. And getting to hear some stuff that, like I said, maybe you forgot, maybe you didn't know. 
one of those things will tickle your fancy in some way, uh, shape or form, uh, on the next show. We'll see what we ha- we cover next. We've got a good list of gimmick matches that we're going to cover at some point and, uh, we're, we'll have some fun. So if you want to follow more going on in the TMPT empire, go to TMPTEmpire.com. Check out all the podcasts. We're actually approaching a six year anniversary milestone. So go back and look at the archive and see some of the big names that have been interviewed on this platform over the last few years. It's pretty astonishing. There's a lot of new generation names in there, but you can spend hours upon hours upon hours hearing stories that you've never heard before. And you may never hear again because they're only on our airwaves. So go over there and check it out. If you want to go to my website, it's ibexclusives.com. There I do a lot of private autograph signings with wrestlers, baseball players, you name it. I'm trying to do it over there. I would appreciate any kind of um, uh, support you could give at IBExclusives.com. We have an autograph uh, session coming up with the Olympic gold medalist, Kurt Angle. So if you're looking for an item to get signed by Kurt Angle, head on over to my page and I would love to uh, help you out. But otherwise, uh, this has been another edition of New Generation declassified we will see you next week so uh for the crack broadcast team that is not here this evening this is the chadster and we will catch you on the flip side thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling what the world is downloading